Now, if you know anything about Moore, you know that he's most famous for his sense of humor. But this is also a quality that from his youth, he saw as a gift that needed to be, one would say, refined and used as the scalpel rather than the sword. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Gerard Wegemer, professor of English at the University of Dallas, sits down with Sam Gregg, Acton's director of research, to discuss Wegemer's new book, The Essential Works of Thomas More. For the first time, Thomas More's most influential English and Latin works have been gathered into a single volume creating a unique resource for anyone interested in Moore's teaching on theology, statesmanship, and Renaissance humanism. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg, and I am the Research Director at the Acton Institute. And it's my pleasure today to welcome Jared B. Wegemer, who is the Professor of English at the University of Dallas in Texas, and who I suspect uh, is known to at least some of our listeners as perhaps the foremost Thomas More scholar in the world. You might think I'm exaggerating, but he's the author of numerous books on the life and thought of Thomas More, and I'm not going to go and uh, list them all for you now. But today we're going to be talking about a book that was edited by Professor Wegemer and Professor Stephen W. Smith of Hillsdale College. And this book is The Essential Works of Thomas More. It's published by Yale University Press, and it's literally a blockbuster. It's an enormous book, which is over almost 1,500 pages long. But it contains a selection of the essential works of Thomas More, uh, ranging from his poetry to some of his religious treatises, to his correspondence, to prayers, Uh, to some of his historical works, such as his history of King Richard III, which is maybe one of my most favourite books uh, by Thomas More, as well as some of his polemical works, which, of course, came to the forefront at the beginning of the Reformation. So welcome, Jerry. It's great to be with you today. Good to be with you also. So I'd like to begin with with an obvious question, which is where I think uh, most of these discussions of uh, books begin, which is... Yale University has had a collection of Thomas More's works out for a very long period of time. This work, this collection of works, the Yale University Press collection of Thomas More's works, I think began in the 1950s. I might be wrong about that, but these works have been around for quite some period of time. So I guess my question is, my first question is, what led you and Professor Smith to put together this very long Uh, collection of Thomas More's writings in the format that you've done it in? Because his works have practically been speaking, been unavailable to the common reader. 
After Shakespeare's death, within 15 years, there was a collected works, and every generation, there was a new and updated version. We haven't had a version of Moore's writings that an ordinary reader could read since 500 years ago. 1557 was the first collection of Moore's writings that were done, and it's just been unavailable. So what Yale did from 1950s until 1997, 25 scholars, 40 years, it took to get what would be the equivalent of the first folio of Shakespeare. That is, manuscripts that were transcribed, no footnotes, no punctuation that a modern reader could read. And that was 23 volumes. But only a specialist could read most of those books, and some of them were Latin and they were not translated. So our effort was to bring together Thomas Moore's 20 books in chronological order. So just as someone who could read all of Shakespeare's plays could get a sense of the whole, so someone could read Moore's works and get a sense of the whole of his life and the whole of his project. Well, that, of course, leads to the next question, which is, uh, how did you go about selecting the materials that went into this work? Because it's called The Essential Works of Thomas More, which suggests, of course, that there are some non-essential <laughs> publications, right? So can you t- give us t- some sense of how and why you selected the particular works here? You said they're in chronological order, um, but I'd be interested in knowing why some works uh, are present and more present in some cases than others. Well, actually, between the book and the website, all of Moore's writings are available uh, through the two of those. We didn't include more than the introduction, for instance, of the confutation of Tyndale because it's a thousand pages in itself. Uh, and it's not going to be for someone who's going to read more uh, for the first time. So uh, we've represented all 20 of his books in this collection. And we have put on the website, for instance, those that were written in Latin, we put those on the website. Uh, so Richard III, we included only the English version, and the Latin version is on the website. Um, we did a translation of some of the books, and the original is on the website. So as you were putting these materials together, and here we're going to start moving to some of the substance of the writings, as you started putting the materials together in this chronological order as you describe it, what were some of the common themes that you saw emerging right from the very beginning? So you've studied the, work, the life and work of Thomas More for a very long period of time. Um, but putting this work together in this particular form, what were some of the common themes that started to become very apparent to you and Professor Smith as you were editing and compiling this collection of writings? The importance of liberty and the working out of a true Christian humanism that would support free government. One of the biggest surprises was that Moore's first published work was actually a speech by a defender of the city, a lawyer, a orator, about the nature of tyranny and what would be needed for a self-governing people to actually maintain its self-government. That's an extraordinary first work Uh, in Utopia. Of course, we've given a translation, but 
Moore's use of the vocabulary that Cicero develops for the ancient Roman Republic, for his early poetry, their very daring poems about the importance of free government, about authority residing with the people, about the importance of limiting power because power corrupts. And also as he develops uh, his work as uh, into the Reformation period, the importance of free will, mm. which supports his understanding of free government and of self-government as within the capability of every nation and every person, male and female. His letters to his daughter, his defense of education for, for women, these are qualities that uh, people don't understand how important he was in terms of establishing the foundation for true self-government. And part of that is an educated citizenry. Now you mentioned Christian humanism. I'd be interested in uh, you giving our listeners a sort of sense of what Christian humanism is, at least as how Thomas More understood it. You also mentioned Cicero before, which I think is an interesting thing, which we'll come back to, which is the the influence of some of the classical authors on Moore's thought. But Christian humanism is something that for many people today, they hear that phrase and they think Jacques Maritain or some of these uh, mid-20th century uh, primarily Catholic thinkers. But for someone like Thomas More, writing as he is in the really the early 16th century, what is Christian humanism for him? It's the fully educated person that grows in virtue, that's able to help others grow in virtue. This phrase of virtue politics that uh, has recently been used by James Hankins is very close to what Thomas More understands as the importance of a humanism that's open to everyone but which Christianity explains in a new light, which actually makes it accessible to everyone. The importance of each human being having dignity as a human being, the fact of every human being being rational and free, but that it requires a certain development to actually exercise that self-government. This is the importance of virtue uh, in his thought, one of his greatest themes is the danger of pride and the danger of tyranny of a person that doesn't understand the limits of power and doesn't understand the limits of human nature unassisted that could tyrannize others. So his first works are translations from the Greek uh, and then from the Latin of books like the Republic, Aristotle's Ethics, those works that were foundational in Western history so that we understand how human beings are truly equal. They're equal under law uh, and they're equal if there can be a certain social, political maturity that allows a society to operate. So it, it's a complex, fully philosophically defensible understanding 
of what you what it means to be a free human being and what qualities you need to actually be free. So when we talk about Christian humanism and Moore's understanding of, of it, um, does he see any conflict between what was understood as, let's call it small o orthodoxy, orthodox Christianity as it existed in his time, compared to the sort of the humanist movements, particularly associated with the Renaissance. So in other words, are there any tensions that he sees in Christianity on the one hand, this sort of medieval, early modern Christianity, and humanist movements more generally that were emerging at this period of time, not just in Italy, but in Northern Europe as well? Great question. It goes to the heart of the matter. His first work in English is presented as a translation of the life of Pico della Mirandola, mm-hmm. is arguably the most famous of the Renaissance humanists. But in his translation, he clearly shows the dangers of not truly understanding Christianity and of not tr- truly understanding human nature. So properly understood, there's no conflict, but it's very difficult to properly understand what human nature is ordered towards. And in Moore's writing overall, he does point out that for most people, revelation is absolutely necessary. These are such difficult philosophic issues where one can be confused without an excellent teacher and without excellent circumstances to help guide your thought in these in these particular waters. So when he, this Christian humanism and Christian humanist movement is becoming prominent at this particular period of time, and it's very much reflected in so many of the writings of more that you've put together in this, uh, this, this, uh, this essential works, I'm wondering to what extent... This is more uh, engaging in a type of instruction, forming people intellectually but also morally. But what, to what extent is he also reacting to what's going on around him, both in England at the time and more generally in European intellectual life? He and Erasmus are intellectual peers, and Erasmus considers more his best friend. Uh, When Moore dies, Rasmus says, we are of one soul. But it was Moore and Moore's friends in England that convinced Erasmus that they had to go back to the sources, both of Christianity and of what we'd say Western thought, philosophic thought, to escape the problems and and the ideologies that were dominating culture at the time. So Moore, after law school, took up the study of Greek and he challenged Erasmus to do the same thing. For three years, they both concentrate on mastering Greek. And at the end, Moore is the one who challenges Erasmus to a Greek translating contest of a surprising author, Lucian. Who is a comic ironist who is going to help 
people see human nature in ways that won't, let's say, stir up all their passions. And Moore even explains that the reason he is studying Lucian as a young man, Moore as a young man, is that Lucian has the quality of probing deeply without disturbing the equanimity of his audience. Now, if you know anything about Moore, you know that he's most famous for his sense of humor. Hmm. But this is also a quality that from his youth, he saw as a gift that needed to be, one would say, refined and used as the scalpel rather than the sword. That is, Moore has, and sometimes he presents himself as an author, as a fatherly figure or as a friend to the reader. He's very much interested in leading the reader to reflect on what's true and what's good and to activate the reader in this enterprise of self-government, which means self-education. So you mentioned Erasmus a number of times, and you also said that the two men were great friends. I'd like to ask you about another prominent intellectual or thinker of the time, uh, that being Machiavelli. Uh So I'd like to get a sense from you of where does Machiavelli figure in all this, particularly at least in terms of the mind of Thomas More? Because you mentioned in your remarks before, you, you said that Moore is in some respects trying to get people beyond the ideologies of the moment, the ideologies of the time. So um, where does Machiavelli feature in all this? Is he a peripheral figure for Moore or is his thought, or at least what is understood to be his thought, something that Moore is reacting to or even actively combating? There's no evidence that Moore knew of Machiavelli's writings. However, I find that odd, actually, but... (laughs) Yes, but he never refers to him, at least. But it's clear that they both read the same sources and they both are under uh, aware of the alternatives. So Moore is completely aware of the alternative that Machiavelli proposes. But this is also part of Moore's importance in our civilization. Moore provides an alternative to Machiavelli and to the project that Machiavelli inspires. Moore is on the side of virtue politics. Moore understands the role of government, the role of fear, the role of um, the strength of a leader. This is actually all manifested in this speech of the orator who's defending the city. Mm-hmm. You need the qualities of an Odysseus and the strength of an Odysseus if you are going to deal with the problems that any leader is going to face. But this is where Moore's answer is education, law, and from his perspective, the grace provided by revelation. That 
yes, human nature is fallen. Yes, it's inadequate by itself. But through education, it can be strengthened. And through grace, it actually can succeed. Now, you mentioned rulers. And when one reads through this essential works, it's very clear that Moore thinks a great deal about the nature of leadership in a political sense. Yes. Um, His history of King Richard III, which I think is um, one of the most profound profound, uh, histories that's been written, is more than just a history, right? It's also a type of analysis of uh, a monarch who, at least in the historical record, has come down to us as the the exemplar of the manipulative politician who is exceptionally good at persuading people that he's really on their side, whereas in fact his object is the establishment of tyranny. So um, you mentioned people being fallen, people being weak, people being, as more understood it, sinful, marked by what Moore would have understood to be original sin. What do you think are the works in which Moore most deftly addresses this question of the nature of being a ruler, being someone who is responsible for the common good of the polity? So what are the works where he most deftly addresses these questions and what are some of the most important things he has to say to us about rulership? Definitely his Latin poetry where he can be most um, forthright about the principles involved, uh, his utopia, and Richard III. That's all written before he enters the king's service in 1518. Mm -hmm. He cannot be addressing those types of issues any longer as the king's counselor, at least not in the same way. Now, all these works are extraordinarily subtle. Uh, You sketched out very well the the importance of Richard III. Uh, And and the interest of Richard III is not just the ruler, but the nature of the people that allow, and the circumstances that allow such a ruler to arise. This is a very important part of the story. As a lawyer and as a judge and as a political person, Moore sketches brilliantly all the safeguards that are in place in London and England to prevent a Richard III from arising. And yet he does arise. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the intrigue and the brilliance of the work. But that work is so... Um, let's say, damning for the causes. Uh, And it has a darker nature. It could certainly stir up passions. Moore never publishes that work Mm -hmm. in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. Neither version. He writes an English version and he writes a Latin version. And he doesn't publish either. Now, does he not publish because... uh... Part, I mean, you mentioned you're suggesting that one reason he doesn't publish is because it is dark. It doesn't give a particularly attractive um, 
picture of most of the protagonists, right? There are some who come through as a little bit more noble, but not many. Um, so is this, he does not publish this, is this part, you mentioned it's partly because of that, but is he also concerned about how the ruler of the time might have read this, might have understood this work? The ruler and the rulers. <laughs> that is the king and the nobles. Now, this is where what he decides to do instead is to write a playful, highly ambiguous, Socratic dialogue called Utopia, mm -hmm. where he will investigate the same issues, but in a way that is more Lucian. That is, there is built-in humor, playfulness, and it's not as threatening at first to a first-time reader. However, you can't read that seriously and not see the flaws in England's own organization of government and the need, for instance, to have an independent judiciary, one not appointed to or um, going to respond to a king. Uh, he more brilliantly points out the problems not only of England's internal organization, but also the weaknesses in the Roman ancient Republic. I mean, this is a deeply philosophical, but also highly political work that forces the careful reader to think comprehensively about human nature, about institutional arrangements, about the place of law, Utopia supposedly has few laws and absolutely no lawyers involved. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely outlawed. Now, written by a lawyer and a judge <laughs> um, and dramatizing different lawyers in the first book of Utopia, uh, it's a command performance for anyone trying to think for instance, of what Aristotle's politics present, all the elements needed to be considered if you're founding a people. So you mentioned the judiciary and the law, and you also mentioned, as I think many people know, of course, even people who aren't particularly super familiar with law, with, with more, that uh, he was a lawyer. That was his profession. When you're putting this work this collection, collected works together, these essential works, which of the texts do you think give us the closest insight into More, Thomas More, as a lawyer, as someone committed to the profession of law, but who also sees law as part of the integral flourishing of the type of society that he thinks it's possible to have in this world. So which of the works do you think in this uh, essential, in this, which of the writings in this essential work do you think come closest to giving us an insight into Moore's thought as a lawyer? Early Moore, definitely Richard III and Utopia. The role of law and lawyers are very important themes in both works. But then also in his controversy with Reformation thinkers, Mm -hmm. um, and also with Cromwell and Henry's 
attempt to take away the judicial independence of the church. These are more technical works, but the apology, for example, and the and the um, and the devilation, mm-hmm. which he writes later in his life, he's taking on Christopher St. German, who is very prominent lawyer of the time. Yes, the most prominent, actually, mm-hmm. and probably the most influential, because his text will be used for hundreds of years, in which he will argue that Parliament should have precedence over conscience and that Parliament should be the absolute authority, not the church and not individual conscience. Moore takes that on. And Christopher St. German and Cromwell will both accuse the church at that time of being unjust in its practices of of judging. More just in the sense that they were usurping what they thought was the state's rightful role, or in the sense of the church, the church's canon law, for example, being more applicable than it should? Or is it more a question of which church or state they think should be much more important when it comes to the business of law? A a bit of each of those, actually, a good distinction. Um, The big one is going to be over marriage. Hmm. Who has authority over marriage? church or state, but also Moore will take um, case after case and say, look, prove to me that there was an injustice here. And Christopher St. German never responds back to Moore's challenges. Uh, Moore's calling their bluff. He's calling their accusations. He's asking for proof. Now, ultimately, again, One of the reasons we wanted in one book all of his major writings represented in order was so we could eventually in time get a sense of his life's project. And was he consistent or not? How did he conceive his role? Uh, As what Rasmus says is the one genius of his time, Uh, someone who goes back to Plato and Aristotle and to all the existing state organizations to think through what does England need to have a more just society, to end this constant civil wars, to end the impoverishment that comes about because of the wars and because of bad government. Uh, I mean, this is a young man, as a young man, these are the problems Moore sees around him. Uh, And he spends years thinking about it. And then he spends his life trying to do what he can to solve them. For instance, uh, another very important document uh, is the epitaph that he writes for his own tombstone mm. three years before he dies and two years before he's imprisoned. And on that tombstone, he once written, actually etched in stone, what really happened with his resignation and with his conflict between Cromwell and Henry. And there's one line on this epitaph that is indented, and it is his prayer for universal peace. He is an uh, an ardent opponent of Henry's imperial designs to get an empire for himself like Henry V. This is 
17-year-old King Henry's dream when he becomes king. Moore knows about that. Moore writes about that. And he doesn't work for Henry until there are things in place where that can't happen. But it does. Mm. But in any case, Moore has a comprehensive vision that, look, a good society is going to be a peaceful society that's going to respect the legitimate laws uh, that are going to be respecting the people who live in that country. So uh, back to the question of which of his works show his understanding of law. There are many of them, but he can never directly address them as one would expect. Because of the political context. Of Correct. The okay. In fact, now ultimately, he's arrested. Mm. I mean, the government takes the enormous risk of electing arguably the most popular person of that time because he's so successful. He writes four books in his retirement in a year and a half, and they sway public opinion. They, he has people on their side. He has parliament on his side. Now, part of, of course, the, of Moore's, Moore's struggle in these later years of his life, um, the, a word figures prominently, which you've mentioned a couple of times, and that is the word conscience, the word conscience. Now, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that Thomas More's conception of conscience is very different from how modern thinkers uh, think about the idea of conscience. So could you explain to us what's the distinct understanding of conscience that More brings to these discussions, particularly when it concerns trying to explain why he won't do, he won't take the oath, he won't do certain things that the government wants him to do, and where is this most expressed in written form in his works? Moore understands conscience as it was traditionally understood as a work of practical judgment, judging whether or not a particular action is just. Now, he judges this in light of principles which he, his mind does not create but which his mind discovers. So this is where, for him, the laws of the country, the best laws, the laws like Magna Carta, the ones that have the deepest roots and the longest historical importance over time, and the laws of the church, especially the Ten Commandments, uh, and those things that can be discoverable by reason, but also illumined by revelation. So natural law plays a role here. Correct. Hmm. Correct. Um, so he doesn't create those. He judges actions in light of those. Now, uh, he has a particular letter uh, in his tower writings, in his prison writings. So we should clarify, these are the writings, the letters that he wrote to his daughter in many instances. Correct. Explaining why he would not sign up effectively to the Henrican project. Correct. Now, his daughter, 
and his family do not agree with Moore's stance. His wife calls what Moore does foolish scruples. And his daughter, Margaret, whom he has given the best education anywhere, who is an intellectual equal to his, is trying to persuade him in one of these letters for the fourth time to come out of the tower against his conscience. Moore playfully, but seriously, addresses her, ah, Mistress Eve, come to tempt your father again. Uh, and he explains to her how in conscience he cannot do this. It's a very moving letter. And the reason his conscience won't let him do this is not because he just happens to feel that way or he's right. appealing to a type of uh, um, self for the sake of self or a sense of I cannot do this because it would violate my autonomy, I, I don't feel sincere about this, etc. It's rooted in something else. That's where the force of conscience comes for him. That's right. Um, and for him, there are two major, major issues. One is the role of English law. Mm -hmm. This is clearly not allowed by English law. And he will quote Magna Carta, the King's Coronation Ode, and uh, other works where enshrined for hundreds of years, no layman can be head of a church. Uh, and then the other is going to be the nature of the sacraments, marriage, uh, and also the nature of the church, not as a civil religion, but as an independent religion. Now, this is also... Again, the depth of Moore's own study, when he was in early 20s, he gave a series of public lectures to the most learned people of London on Augustine City of God, mm. a thousand page study of the difference between a civil religion and a revealed religion. So City and of God, City of Man. Correct. So when Moore is writing these letters in the tower. I mean, in one sense, they are for his family, but they're also for uh, a wider audience, a wider Western European audience that are following, as we now know, this drama pretty closely. It wasn't just something that people in England were paying attention to, as you mentioned. There were people uh, in continental Europe ranging from people like Erasmus, but also people like Emperor Charles V, who had a very particular interest in this case because of his aunt being Catherine of Aragon. When you look, when you look at those letters, those last letters he wrote, what do you think are the key messages he's trying to convey to these wider audiences of the time that go beyond the specifics of the case that he's having to deal with? As a good lawyer and historian, he wrote, he read a lot of history as a young man. He wrote the history of Richard III. Mm -hmm. He wants to have the facts clear. What happened? What was at stake? One of these is the nature of good law and good government and the proper authority of a ruler. And He's also showing the dangers 
that are involved in giving a ruler too much power. He's also trying to appeal to Henry's own conscience. So he never gave up on King Henry. Never. Not even on the scaffold. Mm-hmm. In these letters to two different people, he recounts the conversation that he had with Henry V before he agreed to him, agreed to work for him. Henry VIII. Henry, Henry VIII. VIII. Yes. First time uh, in 1518 when he was 40. And then a second time when he accepted to be Lord Chancellor in his 50s. Both times, Moore had a conversation with Henry VIII about conscience. And both times, Moore reports, Henry gave the best lesson that Christian prince could ever give a subject. And that is, first look to God and to your conscience, and then to the king. And in both times, Henry agreed that he would not involve Moore in issues that went against Moore's conscience. And that was part of the agreement that Moore has in working for the king. And that's why Moore's last recorded words on the scaffold, when he says, I die the king's good servant and God's first, Moore is reminding Henry of those two most important conversations they ever had. We both need to look to God and to our conscience before we make decisions. Well, Jared, we're getting close to the end of uh, this particular podcast. So this is a question I often ask people when I'm interviewing them about these types of essential works, collected works. And the question is this, and I'm sure you've been asked this on many occasions. The question is, of all Thomas More's works, and he wrote a lot. I think it's been estimated that uh, Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, more knew about and greatly admired, wrote something like five and a half million words in his life. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was the case that uh, Thomas More came pretty close to that at some level. But that being said, of all the works, all the letters, all the dialogues, all the treatises, uh, all the instructions, meditations and prayers, all of which you've put together so well in this essential works. What's your favorite piece of Thomas More's writings? I consider his masterpiece the second last work he writes with the leisure of the prison. Mm-hmm. Using when, coal, I think, as well. <laughs> <laughs> with 57 years of experience, mm-hmm. looking back over a very accomplished life, his dialogue of comfort against tribulation. It's a 240-page Socratic dialogue the size of Plato's Republic about the nature of suffering, but most importantly, the nature of courage, how you achieve it, how you maintain it under the worst of sufferings. It's an extraordinary work of self-knowledge but also of pointing out the role that a true Socratic figure, a true father figure, would play in the life of a young person. So the plot is old Anthony is on his deathbed and young Vincent comes to him because an invading force is going to come. And this invading force has been there before 
has tortured people and has killed everyone over 13 and brought all the children back to the conquering land. And he's coming again. And the guy is petrified. Both Anthony mm. has been through the, the invading invaders twice. And he has three days of conversation in which he equips this young man to be truly courageous and to grow in knowledge of himself. Do you think he's writing in part to bolster his own courage and remind himself what, what he's doing, why he's doing, knowing full well that Henry VIII, uh, pretty ruthless character, all things yeah. considered, is going to do what he thinks he's going to do? For sure. And that's one of the motives. But that's also part of this complete vision of Christian humanism. Moore does not separate himself from the rest of human beings. He knows he is prey to the same forces within himself. Uh, but it's also written for his family, for his friends, for all those rulers that have fallen asleep and given up their courage. But as any great writer, it's also written for posterity. He sees this as an obligation which as a father of his country, he needs to leave for the others. And I think uh, th this is the importance of, again, getting a full view of Moore. It's very interesting that Chesterton, who was a, a historian himself, mm. you know, a, a deep reader of history, called Thomas Moore um, a, a figure of liberty an indispensable figure of liberty in the history of Western civilization. Someone who understood liberty and someone who could lead a life that was truly free. There's definitely a truth there. As a young man, Moore struggled to understand how he could actually free himself and his own soul to do what was right and understood the difficulty of doing that. But also, because he was a citizen of London, Moore was a ruler himself of London in 1515. And by that time, London had been ruling itself for 300 years since they had forced the king in Magna Carta to allow them to have their own mayor, their own sheriff. Uh, London had a 20-foot high wall, eight feet wide. Uh, the, the, the royals were not allowed inside the city. I mean, London had a very clear sense of the dangers threatening their freedom and what they needed to have in place to actually be free citizens. This is part of the fascination of Richard III. You get a glimpse of what London had done to be free and self-governing. Very practical people who understood the realities of life. But for Moore, one couldn't have a free country unless one has free people. And how do each of us freely govern ourselves by the good, by what truth shows us, and not be a slave to passions, self-interest, or prejudices? I think that ultimately that's going to be where Moore is most important. And that's, for instance, what Shakespeare learned most from Thomas Moore. I mean, Shakespeare's first four plays are based on Moore's Richard III. And 
Shakespeare understands clearly Moore's project. The truth shall set us free. <laughs> Professor Jared Regumar, thank you very much for this conversation. I recommend to all our listeners the book, The Essential Works of Thomas More, edited by Gerald B. Wegemar and Stephen W. Smith. It's a very long book, but I can assure you that reading it from cover to cover will not only enlighten your mind, but I think it will also help your soul as well. Uh, I'm Sam Gregg. I'm Director of Research at the Acton Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, for those who are interested in learning more about the Acton Institute, our website is www.acton.org. There's a wealth of material there on themes such as the ones we've been discussing today, but also themes concerning politics, economics, government, civil society, and particularly some of the themes of freedom, which I think Thomas More is one of the great thinkers of, one of the great, great pr practitioners of, and one of the great educators in. Thank you very much, Professor Wigamer, and thank you very much to all our listeners. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.